0: Been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and this week we come to um, what many consider to be kind of the, the summation of what Jesus has to say concerning um, his teachings in chapters 5 and 6 of the Gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew seven twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's read that together, folks. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So in 2014, there was uh, the first of kind of a trilogy of this landmark work came out from this Israeli historian named Yuval Nora, Noah Harari, and this is this book, Sapiens. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever read Sapiens? Sapiens? Okay, well, this illustration's going to fall flat, folks, so just stay with me on this one. Well, uh, Sapiens in, t- in 2014 was translated into, not in 2014, but in 2014 it was translated into English, and then since then, to date, it has been translated into 65 languages and sold 23 million copies. None of those here at Gateway. But... You could say 23 million is a pretty significant number, yes? And we all nod and say yes. Uh, what's curious to me is how this book has been sold so well. That, those sounds, on, those are good sounds on the internet, okay? If you hear those, it's sounds of glee. Gleeful expectation from the sounds of, of children. Nevertheless, there's not a gleeful hope in, uh, at the start of Sapiens. The opening chapter is titled... An animal of no significance. That's about you and me. An animal of no significance. It's really curious to me that this is so, sold so well and been read so widely, mostly, mostly along like progressive Westerners, but nevertheless, it's sold really well. How does that happen when the first chapter is an animal of no significance, and then the book continues to kind of plot this trend toward essentially the extinction of our species and some superhuman-like uh, superintelligence replacing us? If you know, please tell me. I don't know how this is done so well. And, and I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm not an academic. I'm a pastor practitioner. So even the idea that I'm engaging with Harari is kind of a joke. But, I, I mean, this is what you do. You just stand up and you act like you know what you're talking about, right? See, I, I highlight this because tucked into the middle of Harari's work is, is this stunning evaluation. And I think what he does is, is he... He kind of puts his finger on how we conceive of life today. In our context, as kind of late modern Westerners living in America, there is value linked up with what we understand as inalienable rights. So inalienable rights, right, these right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. This is Harari's assessment of liberty. Liberty? There's no such thing in biology. Just like equality, rights, and limited liability companies, liberty is something that people invented and that exists only in their imagination. It's kind of interesting if you think about it. There is no such thing because you can't poke it. You can't touch it. You can't measure it. And this little vignette, it drives home that for Harari, only biology is real. Living things are real. Human organisms are real. But the stuff that comes out of our imaginations, like rights and dignity and liberty, those are not real. Instead, and these are his words, not mine, those are Christian myths. Dignity, liberty, those extend from Christian myths. What if those are the true myths? See, uh, just to be clear, this is not like some elaborate setup for some ultimate, like, creation versus evolution smackdown or something silly like that. No, this is the opposite. I want to start us here to demonstrate the contrast, the contrast between the words of Jesus that we just read together and this position on liberty that Harari puts forward that has been sold a lot, (laughs) 23 million copies. So I start us here to, to show us that this invitation from Jesus to do to others as you, to do to others as you would have them do to you, this is existing in a different solar system, a different universe. It is a different way to perceive of the world because in Jesus' framework, like dignity is real. And humanities have dignity. Why? Because in all of our beautiful complexity, even with, like, this sin sickness, we somehow distinctly reflect the image of God back out into the world. There's, like, you'll hear people talk about, like, the spark of the divine. They'll talk about it in different languages. But the way the scriptures talk about it is that we, like a mirror, reflect God back uniquely and distinctly in all of creation. We bear God's image. This is a different story and so just like the liturgy we just went through and the generosity liturgy and the scripture, the songs we sang, this stuff is participating in a different story because we wanna be formed into the story Jesus is telling us. And yet this is con, like it's, it's so different than the story we hear six days a week. Are we tracking? So this is all just to set up this contrast. And over the past few months, we've been working through a set of teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. Some just call this Jesus's kingdom manifesto. I quite like that. But basically, if you want to know what it looks like to flourish in a life with God, you come to the Sermon on the Mount. Because in this place, you will learn what it means to be human again. You'll learn what it looks like to see the appetites of your flesh and know there's another way that, in fact, you don't have to entertain the thoughts of anger or bitterness because Jesus is creating a a pathway forward called enemy love. Now, that doesn't mean that's easy or even accessible on your first try. Yet, nevertheless, it is a reality that you're invited into. And rather than base this kingdom manifesto on like how big our brains are, uh, Jesus says, "No, like there is a different well from which I'm drawing. It's this well that eventually we'll know as love." See, Jesus, is, is his whole framework of the Kingdom Manifesto has this undergirding reality of love that's motivating these actions. And love is this not squishy or kind of warm, fuzzy thing. It is this raw and visceral and prickly thing that is to give yourself away for the good of another, even at cost to yourself. This is what motivates the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to know what it looks like to flourish, according to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is the mental map that you abide by. It's not just time and chance. There's actually a movement that Jesus is inviting us into, and it's this movement of love. And what sums all this up is our teaching text for today. There's some cues in the text that Jesus uses to tell us that this is the bookend. There's a moment earlier, and we'll get to this later, where Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. He doesn't want to do away with them. But when you hear this, there's some textual evidence that gives bearing to this statement, that this sums it up. But if you want to know how Jesus sums up the Sermon on the Mount, it's in these words, Matthew 7:12. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And just, just think about that for a moment with me. Like, like, lean in here to hear this, because we're going we're gonna to do some tracking. Um, if this, th- these words, do to others what you would have them do to you, if this sums up the law and the prophets, which the law and the prophets is kind of the shorthand for the Bible of Jesus' day, if this sums it all up, and Jesus is telling a fundamentally different story, do you ever wonder, like, what were the law and the prophets all about? Like, can you ever just read your Bible and just like read some words and go, I have no idea what this means? <laughs> Anybody? No, just me? Okay. And Linnea? Um, we're about to learn what the Law and the Prophets are about in 10 minutes. Are you ready for this? This is going to be, I'm about to like open up the fire hose, so um, get a bucket, open your mouth wide, and um, let's go. In Hebrew, the first five books of the scriptures, uh, this is what is known as the Torah, or this is Genesis to to Deuteronomy. Uh, These books are um, often, like, Torah literally means instruction or teaching, but often we hear these words and we think law. And in this work, the, the, the law is itself. It makes sense that we would consider the Torah as law because it's those five books that contain the 613 commandments given to and recorded by the people of Israel, so first five books, you know, like you're going to do, you read the Bible in the year program thing, and you get to Leviticus where you always stop because you get to this like block of law. And you're like, I'm not going to read this. And then you're like, oh, bummer. There goes the Bible again. Well, this is the law. And you're like, that's that's usually what we conceive of. But if we stop right there and we think, well, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. is It's just law after law after law. That's kind of it, but it misses that supporting and building up and generally just explaining the landscape of those laws is a larger narrative about the Creator God, Yahweh, who is seeking after people to restore them. Essentially, the Creator God is seeking after humanity to build up, to form the type of people through whom the love of the Creator God could flow. This is the larger story that the law is nested in. Because God has a specific desire to restore all of creation. And you see the laws are not arbitrary and they're also not created in a vacuum. That is to say they're not general. The, the laws are specific. They're given to a people in a time with a situation in mind. They're very contextually driven. They're given to the people of Israel. And you say, "Well, why why does this matter?" Because there was this guy named Abraham. And Abraham, this is in Genesis 12, right before that you get the story of the Tower of Babel, you know, the scattering of the nations. Essentially, the nations are enemies, and then God from among the enemies who are opposed to him chooses this dude, Abram. He invites Abram into this relationship, and he promises this super blessing. Essentially, God binds God's name to Abram. He's like, this guy is not gonna get it. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put my name on the line and he's gonna do this covenant. Um, How many of you tweeted about covenants this past week? That's right, no one. Because we do covenant in one space. That's like a marriage ceremony. That's where you might, maybe, you'll hear the language of covenant. God essentially weds himself to Abram and says, all of your descendants, look up at the stars. They're gonna be more than that. Look at the sand, he lives in the desert. More than that. God weds God's self to Abram, and then from there, it's going to be through these people that blessing flows. It's this super blessing, and the laws are going to come to these people. In other words, the law comes for life. We often think about the law as a restraint on my life, but the law is meant to release life. And if you know how the story goes, um, the Abraham's descendants they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. So basically, they are under this tyrant in Egypt and God, who is committed to his promise, he rescues the people of Israel. And then in the wake of their deliverance, Yahweh invites the Israelites into this partnership. So now it's not just Abram or Abraham, it is the whole people who are his descendants who are going to get the covenant blessing. And so they come to this mountain, God descends, it's like smoky mountain God, it's pretty epic. And then the super blessing is going to flow out and they're like, yes, let's do the thing. That's in the Hebrew. No, it's not. So they're saying, yes, let's do this. And it's kind of like this constitution for this newly formed people who've been released from slavery. How do we live? And this is where we come. This is an exodus. Look at us. We made it through Genesis. Now we're in exodus. You're like, how long is this going to take? Six more minutes. And in this little constitution for these newly freed people, the laws, they range in form and function. You're going to get stuff about mold on buildings. And a priest is going to come and check it out. This is how you clean it. You wait these days. You cleanse yourself. There's stuff like that. You're going to get stuff about boils. Do you know there's like a whole dermatological section in Leviticus? It's like health and beauty right there in the middle of the Torah. And, And so you get all of these laws, form and function, range, but running right through the middle of them is Yahweh's desire to form a particular people for a particular task, namely to release love to all of the nations. How are we doing? This is the Torah. This is like fantastic. I'm enjoying this a lot. So here we go. So we move from boils to love. That's the Bible. And so the idea is, is that this way of obedience, the way of Yahweh would actually re- release the people, not constrain the people, but release the people into life that they would start to inhabit a new story, and the law would be the scaffolding upon which they stand to make sense and build out this story in their life. It's now a story of generosity in the place of scarcity. It's a story of mercy in the place of judgment. It's a story of love in the place of fear. And how, how does this go? For any of you who've like made it past Leviticus, how's, how's this go? Yeah, it's like a sad face. It's a thumbs way, way, It's kind of a bummer of a story. Basically, they say, yeah, let's do this. And then Moses is up there too long. And they're like, well, who knows what happened to that guy? Aaron, you're the priest. Here's all our gold. And he's like, well, I guess I just... This gold calf just popped out. We'll call it Yahweh. And we'll just... And then they have like an orgy. And that's in the Bible. What do you do with that? And you're like, oh, golly. It's a, this is a bummer of a story. And, and what we see is that the laws, they don't, they don't just come in one big block, they come in response because God has a desire to restore these people. And yet the people reject the restoration that they said that they wanted because it took too long to get to them. You know, it's like when you cancel your order on Amazon because you're like, well, I'll just, I don't know, maybe go to the store, but that's a lame thing to do. It's essentially they're like, God's taking too long. We'll just do this our own way. And that's how this cycle goes. It just unfolds. It's like the impatience of the people. God desires to restore them. There's one like Moses who says, I will intercede. Take me instead of them. And God's like, okay, I'll relent. And he was like, but I'm not going to go with you. And he's like, no, unless you come with us, we'll never know where to go. So it's this epic story. This is the cycle. It's unfolding rebellion and God's faithfulness to turn toward a rebellious people and call them back to God's self. Because he has a particular function for particular people to release love through them. Because the law is intended to bring life. And if these people don't get it, the people outside are also not going to get it. And God desires all of creation to be restored. And so this continues all the way through the Torah. It's really a bummer of a story. And in Deuteronomy, Moses, who's kind of leading the troops, you could say, shoots straight with the people of Israel, and he's kind of ending his ministry career, and he says, listen, you guys are not going to get this. You've blown it the whole time. You have hard hearts. That's how the Torah ends. That's the law. And you know what? Because the Bible's so cool, that story keeps going. The people go into this land promised to them, and they... Continue to define good and bad on their own terms. They continue to chart a way forward according to their own making. They're like, I think we know better. Or these people are kind of scary. We're just going to like, we'll buddy up with them for a bit. God won't be mad about it because this is strategic. So God doesn't give a rip about strategy. He wants obedience because he wants to build the scaffolding that forms a people of love who will release life into the world. Are we tracking with this? The, the, the law is actually there for the good of the people and the good of the nations around them. Jesus comes along and says, I am going to bring these to their fulfillment. But because the people are so negligent of the law, these other folks are raised up. They're called prophets. These are women and men who are going to call the people of God back to covenant faithfulness. It's basically like marriage counselors. They're like, listen, you said I do, and I know this is hard. Maybe, I don't know, like... They're going to get to know. Anyways, the prophets can be, like, rigorous in their pursuit of the people to remember who God is, because ultimately the the people of Israel have forgotten God. There's, there's even one prophet, Ezekiel, who presses the envelope even further. He takes this language of Moses that the people have hard hearts, and God intends to soften it. He says, "Your hearts are so hard, so calcified that you don't just need new hearts; you need a new spirit." This is where the image of the Valley of Dry Bones comes from. It's like the people, you needed a whole new animating reality to form you into the type of people who will release love to the nations. And in turn, what develops in this prophetic witness is that God must send someone. There has to be this anointed one who's going to come and eventually lead God's people into a way of obedience, this obedience of heart, so to speak because God wants His people in all of creation to remain with Him so they may live and all of creation can flourish. This is the law and the prophets. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has no interest whatsoever in discarding the law and the prophets because He is the truly human one who's going to show what obedience and faithfulness looks like. He's going to stand in that place in the rigor of all of those things, in the heart of the law, and bring it forward. And like Moses and the prophets, he's also going to identify the calcifying hearts of the people around him. He's going to name the hardness that is there and not move away, but move toward, because he knows that it's his presence that will ultimately soften and renew the spirit of the people who are around him. So hear this. Jesus is not afraid of your hard heart. Jesus is not afraid of your frustration with him. Jesus is not afraid of you, your condition, whatever your baggage, your family of origin, the things done to you or the things you've done. He wants to move towards you because it's his kindness that wants to draw you in. So if you don't give a rip about the law, I don't care, but if you please hear something, Jesus wants to move towards you with kindness for your good. He wants to sit with you in the midst of that so you would be healed. This is the Jesus that we see and people are like, Who is this man who says he's going to fulfill the law and the prophets and then goes about moving toward the people who are outcasts? Who is this man? See, the solution didn't come through force or coercion. It didn't come through military might. It came through this, like, radical act of love. See, Jesus' paradigm for love, it is more complex, it is more demanding and more beautiful than we realize. And again, this is not like warm and fuzzy love. This is prickly, in your face, almost annoying kind of love. It's the, have you ever been in an argument with your partner or your good friend, and you are just, and they're persistent and moving towards you, and you just don't want it? You're like, get away from me. And they say, "I, I hear you. I respect what you're saying. And and I'm not, I'm not going away. I have, like, abandonment issues. And so the worst thing that Jessica could do is, like, leave a room. And early in our marriage, do you know how we fight? I would never, I would, like, not let the thing go because I'm like, don't leave me. And she would be like, I'm done with this. You, you, need, you need to, like, give me space. But her leaving was, like, the deepest fears of my heart and anxiety coming out before me. Things have shifted. We're, we're learning to fight better. But, but still, like, there is this thing, like where I know that she needs space, but I know she's also not going anywhere. This is like, it's like Jesus says, I know you need some space, I'm not going anywhere because I'm gonna loop back with you. This is the type of like, he's just gonna, this is the type of love that Jesus is gonna have. It's just gonna continue chasing after you. Because Jesus, I mean, think, think about the teachings that we've just heard in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the type of love that Jesus had. He doesn't just wanna attend to like the gross sins, like murder. I think we can all agree, is murder loving? No, we would give it like a thumbs down to murder on the loving scale. What about bitterness? Is bitterness loving? I think objectively, yeah, we're like here, if they deserve it. What about anger? Where well, you're like, oh, there's righteous anger. Darn right there's righteous indignation. Like like rape, things like that, like that ought to yield something of frustration and divine discontent. Like yeah, that ought to elicit some stuff because it's gross, it's, it's like undignifying the dignified. but. Like annoyance with your friend who doesn't text you back. By the way, I'm that friend. Like Jesus, what he wants to do is not just address the murder, the gross sins. He wants to get into the spaces that we want to, like, he wants to get into those places and exercise anger and bitterness and malice because it's those things that will start to be this corrosive content on our soul. It'll harden our hearts. It'll calcify them. It'll dampen our sensitivity to the spirit. So Jesus wants to get in there with his love and dig it out because he wants to take our hard hearts and make them soft. How are we doing, folks? Welcome to church. I'm just here to encourage you today that Jesus wants to take your hard heart and actually form you into a person of love. Amen? Amen? Okay, we got some head nods. We're doing it, folks. See, this is, this is to me one of the most beautiful things about Jesus is that where Israel compromised and rebelled against the way of Yahweh, Jesus remained faithful. He remained faithful in the face of people spitting on him. He remained faithful in the way of rejection. His brothers and sisters said, this guy's crazy. His disciples who were closest to him, they're saying, I would die for you. And then a change of circumstances, and they're like, peace. You know, like, Jesus stays faithful to the end, and there is something beautiful. When Jesus wants to think about how the law and the prophets are summed up in His life, He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And as you might imagine, there's a lot tucked into that, because we just spent like 15 minutes going over the law and the prophets with a little extra stuff in there. So what we're gonna do for the remainder of our time is we're just gonna unpack this verse. We're just gonna sit right here, we're gonna talk about a couple of the words, and then we're gonna move into what this actually looks like for me and you. How's that sound? So, in everything, to start, just that word so. In Greek, it's the word soon. Try that on, soon. We know this word in English, there's two O's, but if you transliterate it, it's just S-U-N. So soon. Soon is this word that can also be translated, therefore, and what that does when you're reading it, it says, stop, look back. The cheesy thing is, what is the therefore, therefore? So you look backward to say this soon is drawing our attention backward so that we might consider all that Jesus has said, the stuff that he said about loving our enemy, the stuff that he's said about what you do with your body and your sexuality and your marriage and all of these things. Jesus is drawing that to the fore, and then he is going to move forward. So, or therefore, in light of all of that, and then he says this, in everything. Do you have any, anybody want to guess what in everything means in the Greek? Wow. In everything. You thought it was a trick question? No, it just means in everything. In everything, li- literally all of life's mundanity, this is your work and your rest and your play and the changing of diapers and the taking out the trash and arguing with your partner, like um, going to happy hour with colleagues because you have to, like all of those things, your public and your private life, in everything. Do to others, in all of that, do to others. And this is an interesting word here, the others. Jesus very well could have just said this word uh, adelphoi, Delphoi is about brothers and sisters. This is family, in-group kind of language. But instead, he uses this unique word, anthropoi. This is where we get the anthropology. Anthropoi is about everybody. It's about humans. So Jesus is saying, literally, in everything, with everyone. This is family or stranger, friend or enemy, same gender, different gender, same religion, different religion, same ethnicity, different ethnicity. Do you get the breadth of what Jesus is saying here? Not if you're listening. Yeah, we get the, Jesus is saying in everything, with everyone, this is a comprehensive, all-encompassing command. Jesus is actually making a command. And what is this command? Do to others what you would have them do to you. I love how Eugene Peterson pray- paraphrases this in the message. He says, here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Maybe you have a friend, if the Enneagram is helpful, that's like a two or something like that. And they like have these antenna up where they just see your needs and they just go and do stuff for you. Essentially, this is the invitation of Jesus to do the same. To have your antenna up, like this perception of what are the needs of other people? What's going on? looking at the context of their life. And this, it might sound ridiculously simple and and pretty much redundant because Jesus has been on about this for a while, but there is an assumption baked into Jesus' words here. And the assumption is this. It's relationship. Whether it's your, like with your boyfriend or your barista, your spouse or your neighbor, the assumption holds that we actually relate to other people. See, Jesus has this, this command baked into a framework of relationship. And then Jesus is going to insert this ethic of love into all of your relationships with the people you despise on the internet and the people you love in real life. Like, Jesus is going to insert the ethic of love into all of those places. And just sit with this for a moment. How's that feel? I write these teachings earlier in the week, and so I've sat with that for the week. It doesn't feel good. That Jesus wants me in everything and with everyone to do to them as I would want done to me. Now imagine if Jesus just, you know, rocked up to gravitate on this Sunday afternoon and he decided to come in here and, you know, he gets his communion cup. Ah, bread and body broken. Yes, here we are. What What do you think? What do you think Jesus would be thinking about you and me? Like what's his posture towards us? How is he moving toward us as we gather in his name? You know, it's interesting, what you think Jesus thinks about you when he sees you tells you a lot about your relationship with the living God, but that's a sermon for another time. Like, what is Jesus' mindset toward us? There's one thing that stands out in my mind as I was thinking back through the Sermon on the Mount, and this being the summary, it's, it's this. It's like, Jesus comes fundamentally as a servant. And this is everywhere. Like, when you come through the Gospels, you can easily miss this because it is so regular. But this is is outstanding. I mean, recall, Jesus is the one who says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who wraps himself in a towel, drops to his knees, and washes his disciples' feet in a, like, bold act of service. Jesus is the one who resists worldly ambition when the crowds seek to make him king by force. And what does he do? he retreats, and he goes to the margins, to the people who ought not be served, but there he is, found among them. Jesus is the one who relates to you and me as a servant. So, I'm guessing he comes in here, and his antennae are up saying, what are the needs of these people? It's just a fundamentally different posture to enter into a room. And like last week, uh, there was a call, in some sense, to remember that God's declaration over you and me are… is, is worthy. Like, you're actually worthy to receive the care of the Father. This is who you are. Th- this week, there's an extension from that. Like, He actually trusts you to do the same. And this may sound goofy to you, to hear that the, like, the God of the cosmos trusts you, But if you have this audacious belief, this trust that God actually raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and that that same Spirit now lives in you, has taken up residence in you, then that's not a very far leap, folks, to say that God trusts you to be present to Him and in turn present to other people. And, and by the way, this isn't a strange or obscure notion. In fact, this thing's going to be picked up and littered throughout the New Testament. In one place, just listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a community, trying to encourage them to choose joy as you do as an apostle. Listen to this. This is in Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Enter the room like Him. Who? Being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When Jesus looks at you and me, he is not calculating what he can get out of this relationship. He's not assessing what the win is going to be. He is humbling himself in service. And literally every week, this is what we come to remember. If you came in today, you got the bread and the cup. And if you didn't, it's to your left. There's going to be a point at the close of our gathering when we turn to receive Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. We take it to tangibly remember that in everything and with everyone, Jesus gives himself away in love. And we can as well. It is invitation, not coercion. And there are tons of reasons to come to the table, to come to the bread and the cup. But one of them just might be that we would remember this. And that in taking these things, as we take it in, it's like we who are filled with the life of Jesus can actually be a place where others encounter it. And you know what? You may be in a season where the well has run dry. And you need the bread and the cup to just remember that you are dearly loved by God. You may have nothing left to give. And that is totally fine. If the expectation that you carry in life is that you always have to be giving, always have to be giving, um, maybe this is a season where God just says, I just wanna fill you up. You know the language that Jesus uses about this? It's this language of abide. Constantly, he's saying, remain with me. You know what he says? Remain in my love. He doesn't say, remain in your righteousness, or remain in your good works, or remain in the law. He says, no, remain in my love. And how do you do that? By abiding. That is what that is, to remain. And yes, there is a goal, like, in a, like it would be released through you. But you can't give what you don't have. None of us can. It's ridiculous to think that. So let me just ask, how are you remaining with the Lord? And maybe that sounds like a Sunday school cliche thing, but I tell you what, it is potent. Because if your answer is, I'm not... Of course he feels distant. And this is not to heap shame on any of us. It's like, if, if you don't feel the felt presence of God, if there's no like, acute sense of his awareness, he feels consistently distant. Like, stop. Slow down for a moment. Ask him. Because what he wants to do is with you and in everything. Of course it's in everything and with everyone, but you're a part of that. Jesus actually has a concern for you. This is the movement of this passage. And lastly, Jesus says it sums up the law and the prophets. You know, when Jesus argues that this is the way of living and moving in the world, he is essentially saying that this is what the Bible's all about. He's not just saying that this is what the law, like the Old Testament, is about or the prophets. He's also saying, this is a summary of my teaching. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount and what we've heard so far, you get this introduction. You've... You get the beatitudes, the blessings, kind of the blueprint of who, who an ideal person in the kingdom of God is. And then you get this call into life with Jesus to be salt and light in the world. And then from there, Jesus has this teaching on the law and the prophets. And he says, I did not come to abolish this, but to fulfill it. And then you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to give us 14 teachings from the law and the prophets to demonstrate how it is that he's going to fulfill that, and he's going to do it with us. And then... He comes along to our teaching text, and the point that Jesus is making is that the kind of life, this life of love and abundance, it's actually possible. It's possible with God, but it is costly. Like, I I hope that what you're hearing today is, um, by the way, if if you're here for the first time, I hope that this is what it's like every week. This is maybe a little bit more fire hose of a moment, but but I hope that what we come to this place is that Jesus is going to press in because he wants to draw us out. And sometimes I want to press in a little more because I'm just imagining that life is so full that we need a little extra help remembering that there is another way forward. The way of Jesus, do you remember what he says? That it's light, that there's a different instrument by which you can carry your burdens. The burdens aren't evacuated with Jesus. Life still sucks most of the time. And he says there can be a lightness to the suckiness. He's saying that there is a fulfilled life. There is a life that you can live to the full, and there is a cost to it. And if we take Jesus up on this command in everything and with everyone, we will, we will encounter a cost, and we might just encounter love at the same time. So here's what I've noticed in myself is that I cannot be full of the Holy Spirit and full of love if I'm full of myself. Maybe that sounds a little harsh, but think about it. Like if love is giving myself away for the good of others and the Holy Spirit empowers me to do this, how can I do either of those things if I'm just full of myself? See, however we package Jesus' words, I just think we have to reckon with the cost of love. This is what the New Testament categorizes as agape. By the way, we're now starting to close, so you're doing great. 36 minutes, wow. Here we go. However we reckon with Jesus' words, we have, to, we have to make sense of the cost of love. And, and we actually hear this in, in 1 John 3. Um, the Apostle John says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. See, agape is this term that Christians appropriated and then reconstituted for their own use. They, they took it from the wider world. And Jesus, or John rather, is, is talking about this otherworldly kind of love. This agape love is this foreign, invading, category defining love. And where does it come from? He says right there it comes from the fullness comes from the heart of God that is is centered on the sacrificial care. It is oriented toward others. And I think Augustine captures this really well. He says, many have learned to turn the other cheek, but they do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. See, I can readily love those who have loved me most of the time. But Jesus' command frustrates the ease of that because he's inviting me outside of myself to love those who have hurt me, which I don't want to do. So I, I, like, do you ever wonder how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus love the very people who would eventually abandon him? How did he pray for the people who were hanging him on an execution rack? Have you ever thought about this? Do you want to know? Linnea, you want to know, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He had this deep abiding trust of the Father that his love would carry him through the hardest moment, and the Spirit is the present witness to the love of the Father. That is how Jesus did this. This is the self-emptying of the living God. And in the face of all of these circumstances, I want to draw us back to this, because you see, Jesus, the way of Jesus, fundamentally rejects the notion rejects the notion that you or your neighbor are highly improbable accidents with time and chance and big brains, (laughs) like you just out-competed the other species. Jesus has more to say than that. And Jesus, by the way, wasn't having conversations about evolution, so let's just be real about that. He's, He's talking about the fundamental characteristic of people bearing the dignity and image of God, and in that place, he has something different to say, and he invites us to embrace that. By giving ourselves away in the way He did. Think back to that line in Philippians 2 as we finally close. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Come into the room like Messiah Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see, this is a familiar Bible verse. People, atheists, have trusted Jesus because of this Bible verse. Christians have stopped following Jesus because of this Bible verse. And the thing at the core of it is how low will God condescend? I have no idea what compelled the God of this universe to put on flesh because of the love that He has for us. I don't get—that's—that's bizarre. And yet we're encountering it. And there's a room full of people here in the city of Des Moines who are saying, there's got to be something in Jesus that is more compelling than the life I'm pursuing. There has to be something so sure that I can bank my life on it, that it will actually carry me through whatever I'm in. See, God wrote himself into this strange story to attend to our brokenness and to mend the chaos and and invite us to join us. And you know what? This may sound harsh, but the universe doesn't care about us. The universe doesn't give a rip if we're just improbable accidents, but Jesus actually has an affection for you and me, so fierce that he went and gave his life for it. And that's what we have to wrestle with, the fierce love, the all-pursuing love of Jesus, who made himself nothing, became a servant to restore our dignity.